Hello, and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 217, Clement VII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So we left off our story last week with the church still reeling from the twofold crises of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation and a renewed Turkish attack on Europe. Adrian VI's reforming efforts were ineffective. The papal court was not used to practicing their faith. They were much more used to being Renaissance princes. And so we get a pope that we're going to talk to about today who was born, Giulio de' Medici. And you hear that and you immediately think, oh no, another Medici pope. But he wasn't necessarily all bad, so let's wait and see what happens. Giulio de' Medici was born on May 26th, 1478, the illegitimate child of Giuliano de' Medici, and we believe the daughter of a Florentine professor. A month before he was born, his father was murdered in the Pazzi conspiracy that we heard about a while ago, which was sanctioned by Pope Sixtus IV. And so he was adopted by his uncle, Lorenzo the Magnificent. His godfather, when he was baptized, was the Florentine architect Antonio de San Giallo, the elder, and he seems to have been raised in San Giallo's house for his early life. Now, he grew up with his cousin Giovanni de' Medici, studying with him and going with him to Rome when he was named a cardinal at a very early age. We heard about two episodes ago when the Medicis were expelled from Florence in 1494 by the Savonarola's government. Giulio went with his cousin, Cardinal Giovanni, as they wandered through Europe with all the misadventures we heard about two episodes ago. During this time, it's believed that Giulio had an affair with one of his servants, resulting in an illegitimate son named Alessandro. Officially, his paternity was ascribed to Giulio's relatives, Lorenzo II, and there's no proof one way or another, but the rumor was that he was Giulio's son. Upon returning to Italy, they worked together to try and reestablish Medici control over Florence, and when Cardinal Giovanni was captured at the Battle of Ravenna in 1511, Giulio managed to escape French control and evade capture. He eventually was able to negotiate a pass to visit his brother in captivity, and was then sent by the French as an ambassador to Pope Julius II to work out a deal. He spent the next several years working on restoring Medici control of Florence, which brings us up to February of 1513 and the death of Pope Julius II. Giulio's cousin, Cardinal Giovanni, was elected Pope in the conclave of 1513, as we heard uh, two weeks ago. And that changed everything, as you might expect, for his cousin. With his cousin's election, he decided to stop his warlike ways and enter more fully into the clerical life. He was named the Archbishop of Florence in April of 1513, he was named a cardinal in September of 1513, after he had put a little pressure on his cousin to make it happen. He was a close advisor to his cousin, Pope Leo X, and the real power behind the throne for most of his papacy. His activity was shrewd and diplomatic. One of his first major assignments was his cardinal protector for England. Cardinal Giulio wanted to make an alliance with England and offered his services to Henry VIII. He then worked to help secure the advancement of Henry's own favorite, Thomas Wolsey, who Giulio managed to help make a cardinal in 1515. Now, despite being named a cardinal and given several ecclesiastical titles, including Archbishop of Florence, Giulio wasn't ordained a priest and a bishop until 1517. During his cousin's papacy, he participated in the Fifth Lateran Council and did apparently try to make some reforms in his own diocese of Florence, but most of his activity was that of advisor and confident to his cousin, as well as furthering his family's interests in the various political upheavals in Italy that we've been hearing about for several episodes. He was appointed vice-chancellor of the Holy See in 1517, which was an important and lucrative administrative position in the papal bureaucracy, and a sign of even greater trust from his cousin. His two major projects during this time that we've heard about a couple weeks ago were working on trying to influence the succession of the Holy Roman Empire. He, he didn't want Charles V on the throne. 
and then the problem of Martin Luther. He didn't really take Martin Luther too seriously, but he saw it more in the lens of greater German political problem, which was an oversight in which we've already seen had tremendous consequences. Oftentimes, too, local Florentine politics took him away from his responsibilities to the church, which, again, had negative effects on church history. When he was in Rome, his diplomatic and administrative ability helped his cousin govern relatively effectively. But when he was carried away by Florentine politics, governance in Rome slipped. Leo X, in part, didn't take Luther seriously enough because Giulio didn't and because Julia was occupied with other things. And as we heard two episodes ago, oftentimes a Medici just cares about Florence and their own family issues. Now, when he returned to Rome in 1520, he got back to work on Luther and set up a commission of theologians to examine his doctrine. While Leo X was out hunting, Julia was corresponding with various representatives to the Diet of Worms and working with Cardinal Wolseley in marshalling a response to Luther from around the Catholic world. Henry VIII had published his theological refutation of Luther in his book called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments, which he had written in part with help from St. Thomas More. So in 1521, Leo X granted Henry the title of Defender of the Faith. But politics again got mixed in with theological issues, and conflicts with France, Naples, and Florence demanded Julio's attention. Julio, who in the meantime had been appointed France's cardinal protector, was drawn into a conflict between France and the Emperor Charles V. He decided against France in order to try and keep French armies out of northern Italy. He personally led papal armies in an attack against Milan to drive the French out of Lombardy in 1521. The goal was not to let any one major European emperor or king have too much power in Italy and to keep papal powers supreme. While with the army in northern Italy, in December of 1521, the news reached Cardinal Giulio that his cousin had died. He immediately returned to Rome and was present in the conclave that elected Pope Adrian VI, as we heard about last time. Now, you probably remember that Cardinal Giulio was the one of the frontrunners in that conclave, but was unable to gain a majority, so he helped turn the conclave to electing Adrian VI. Giulio was widely respected, and most people realized that the success of Leo X came from listening to his cousin, while most of the failures came from not listening to him. But European politics came into play, and the pro-French cardinals did, want, did not want him as pope, so they settled for Adrian. Now, apparently, Giulio hoped that Adrian would be rejected too, and that the cardinals would then see the light and choose him, and also see him for being so selfless for proposing someone so holy. But it wasn't to be. During Pope Adrian VI's short papacy, Cardinal Giulio maintained his great influence, but again had to split his time between Rome and Florence. He basically was the governor of the city, and when he wasn't there, like when the conclave was going on, his rivals took advantage of his absence. So he had to return to Florence to try and maintain Medici control often. One of his rivals in the College of Cardinals tried to have him assassinated during that time and remove the Medici family once for all. And even he tried to get the Pope in on the plot, but it backfired. Pope Adrian had the Cardinal imprisoned, and the conspiracy fell apart. When Pope Adrian died, the conclave that would elect his successor was long and bitter. The first day of the conclave featured a prodigious thunderstorm, which took many, many took to be a bad sign of what was to come. The parties were deadlocked again, with the French candidate possessing more votes, but not enough to win the election. The people of Rome started getting nervous, hoping that a Pope would be elected soon, but it dragged on for a month with Giulio de' Medici holding out with about 18 cardinals against the preferred French candidates led by Cardinal Colonna with about 23 cardinals. Now, in an attempt to compromise, someone proposed Cardinal Orsini. And if you've been paying attention to the last couple episodes, that should set off alarm bells for you just as it did for Cardinal Colonna. The Orsini and Colonna families hated each other. But the cardinal who proposed him suggested that the imperial faction hated Orsini just as much, so why not vote for a cardinal everyone hates? Now, that kind of compromise was enough to make Cardinal Colonna change his vote to de' Medici, better a Medici than an Orsini. 
So on November 19th, Cardinal Giulio Medici was elected Pope and took the name Pope Clement VII. Despite his solid performance behind the throne, once elected Pope Clement showed himself to be a weak and timid leader, not up to the challenges which were being thrown at the papacy one after another. Now, the first of these was the conflict between the emperor and the king of France, which we've been hearing about on and off again for several episodes. Charles V, who was Holy Roman Empire, was happy about Clement's election, thinking that this meant that there would be a pro-imperial pope on the chair of Peter, but he was incorrect. Clement had been the major architect of his cousin's policy, which carried on previous papacy's policies of not letting one European state have too much power in Italy. Charles, it seemed, to Clement was already a little too powerful. So while ostensibly he was friendly to Charles, he sent secret letters early on to France and Venice as he wasn't, saying he wasn't going to get involved in anything. The conflict with the empire was tied with the Lutheran one. The princes of Germany had agreed that the best plan to deal with the situation in the German church was a general council in Germany, which the Pope did not want at all. Such a council would be under the control of the German princes, who one after another were becoming Lutherans. The most serious was the Prussian Albert of Hohenzollern, who was elected the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order, a Catholic order of crusading knights, who controlled a large amount of German territory on the Baltic Sea. Albert converted to Lutheranism and transformed the order into his own personal power base. Charles V quashed a council early, but he did implore that the Pope should try and call a council himself, hopefully in Trent, which, though it was in Italy, was close enough to Germany that it would be acceptable to everyone. The council wasn't called yet, but we will put a pin on in that one for later. Now, the Pope did try to stem the abuses of the clergy in Rome by implementing the reforms suggested by the Fifth Lateran Council, so some progress was made, but not enough. The cardinals surrounding the Pope, including the reform-minded Cardinal Carafa, did help in the stirrings of reform in the Curia, however. But again, Luther was all tied up with the conflict between the Empire and France, and Clement VII was playing both sides. After the alliance made with Charles by his predecessor, Adrian VI, ran out, Clement sent secret envoys to the King of France to form an alliance with him. Charles was getting too powerful. But then the King of France lost a major battle in northern Italy and was taken captive, and the Pope switched sides back to Charles. But then the King of France was released and started building up his forces again. The Pope switched to France again and joined an anti-Charles alliance called the League of Cognac. So Charles, fed up with all of this, decided to try and negotiate directly with the Pope. His envoys, however, failed to change the Pope's mind, who wrote a strong letter back to Charles accusing him of being too power-hungry. So the Emperor's envoys then went to the Colonna family, who, as we saw during the conclave, were enemies of the Pope, and they got them to march on Rome. The Pope had to hole up in the Castle San Angelo. A truce was brokered between them, but the Pope had no intentions of keeping it. He hired an army to march on the Colonna family strongholds and punish them for their uprising. The Pope went back and forth, threatening Charles V's army in northern Italy, the Colonnas in the south, hearing one day that the French might help, the next that they would not, and meanwhile, all this back and forth, no one was willing to stand up for him. Charles, meanwhile, wouldn't bail him out and decided he needed to negotiate with the Pope to pay him off, in part because he needed to pay off his own soldiers. But his soldiers, who were majority Lutheran, did not wait for the Pope to pay them off. They marched on Rome themselves, without the Emperor's explicit permission. Pope Clement didn't believe that they would actually attack until it was too late. Frantically, at the last second, he tried to get the Roman people and the great families to lend him money and troops, and none would do so. So then he tried the thing which caused so much scandal in the past, which his cousin had done, sell possessions as cardinals. But it was even too late for that. The men he named cardinals were not able to pay in time to help him raise the money to defend Rome. On May 6, 1527, the people of Rome found themselves surrounded, both by troops and also by a thick fog, which prevented them from seeing fully the enemy. Around 6 in the morning, the imperial troops managed to break through and get into the Borgo neighborhood by St. Peter's. They killed almost everyone in their path, including all the people in the hospital of Santo Spirito. 
The swiftness of the attack caught everyone by surprise, even the Pope who was praying in his chapel in the Apostolic Palace when he heard the imperial troops on the street outside. He ran for it, and, and not a second too soon. If he had waited a couple of more minutes, he would have been captured. He dashed along the passageway which led to the Castle of San Angelo, and behind him the imperial forces were hot on his trail. The Swiss guards fought to enable his escape, and 147 of the 168th men of the guard were killed, allowing the Pope's escape. The Pope and the Cardinals, meanwhile, got to Castle San Angelo, and they cried. Added to all of this, the Pope had received word that his home of Florence had seized the opportunity and rebelled against Medici rule. So the city was sacked by imperial troops. Nobles were held for ransom, blood was shed on St. Peter's altars, vestments, art, sculpture, anything related to the Pope were vandalized, relics were desecrated. The Pope, meanwhile, attempted to negotiate and was holed up in the Castle San Angelo for weeks. He agreed to pay 400,000 ducats to surrender several castles to give amnesty to the Colonial family. And in June, the papal troops in the Castle San Angelo were replaced by imperial ones, and the Pope truly was a prisoner. One German officer, upon arriving, found the Pope and the Cardinals, quote, making a great lamentation and weeping bitterly. He then continued, quote, as for us, we all became rich. Negotiations continued with the imprisoned Pope, and when he was finally released a few months later, he agreed to call a new ecumenical council to discuss the reform of the church, as well as to several monetary conditions. I think it's helpful at this point to realize that not every soldier in the imperial army were under strict discipline. Indeed, Rome was sacked a second time while the Pope was a prisoner, and several of the other bands of soldiers wanted to be the ones holding him in the castle San Angelo. In a very real way, Charles' soldiers were protecting the Pope from other members in his army. So when the deal was finally struck in December 1527, the Pope used his newfound freedom to escape from Rome entirely in disguise and to make his way to Orvieto. Once there, he canceled all the amnesties he had promised in his negotiations previously, and he stated that he would call a council only once Rome and the other seas of the papal states were restored. In 1528, the Pope was able to return to Rome, and in June of 1529, a peace treaty was negotiated between the Pope and the Emperor in Barcelona. As part of the deal, the papal states were able to restore sovereignty over the cities they had lost. The emperor agreed to suppress the revolution in Florence and reestablish Medici control, and the pope agreed to crown Charles V Holy Roman Emperor in Bologna. This he did on February 24, 1530. It was the last time in this long story that we've been telling that a pope would crown a Holy Roman Emperor in all of history. Now, part of the discussions of Pope Clement and Charles V was the calling of a general council to help reform the church and settle the issues in Germany. The Pope pushed back that the only way they could call a council was if the Protestants first submitted to the Catholic Church. But he wasn't as interested in this at the moment. His attention was distracted by Florence. It took a little time for imperial forces to conquer Florence for the Medicis. Once they accomplished this in 1530, the Pope was focused on retribution for the revolution. He put what we believe to be his illegitimate son, Alessandro, in charge of Florence, and the Medicis once again took action against all their enemies in the city. But Charles V kept insisting on a council, constantly writing back to the Pope, and the Pope kept trying to deflect away from it. Finally, the King of France helped him out by writing to him that he was in favor of a council at that time, and the Pope Clement could then write to the Emperor that they couldn't do it because France was against it. He tried to strengthen ties with France by marrying his cousin Catherine de' Medici to one of the sons of the King of France and by naming a couple of new French cardinals. But Charles was not put off, and in 1532 he came back to Italy to meet again with the Pope in Bologna. One of the goals of Charles was to block the marriage of the Pope's niece to the son of the King of France, and another was to block Henry VIII's attempts to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. Now, we haven't talked about it yet, but in the background of all these upheavals, Henry VIII and his chancellor, Cardinal Wolseley, 
were trying to get the marriage annulled. The Pope decided firmly that this could only take place through the tribunal in Rome and nowhere else. Likewise, a letter went from Bologna to King Henry to warn him they better stop seeing his now mistress Anne Boleyn or else risk excommunication. The Pope was still unable to commit to one side or another, however, in the European disputes, and he tried to delay calling a council again and decided in 1533 to go ahead with the marriage alliance in France. The very day he left for France, Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, annulled on his own authority the marriage of Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon and married him to Anne Boleyn. The Pope declared the new marriage annulled when he found out, and he excommunicated Henry VIII. And if you know anything about what happens in England next, you know it's not going to go well for the church. But Pope Clement VII wouldn't solve that problem, or the problem of the Protestant Reformation in general, or the problem of the Turks, or any of the other problems he was facing. Returning from France, he fell ill in 1534 and died on September 25th. He was buried originally in St. Peter's Basilica, but as its renovation continued, his body was moved to Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, across from his cousin Leo X's tomb. He was succeeded by Pope Paul III, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Popham. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.